Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Jonah Goldberg, David French, and Steve Hayes. We have plenty to discuss today. Breaking news overnight, the resignation of Boris Johnson from the UK prime ministership. We'll talk about Chicago and the tragedy unfolding on July 4th, the latest from Ukraine. And finally, how baked is the 2022 midterm election here? on this, perhaps. But Boris Johnson, scandal after scandal after scandal. Finally, overnight, he announced, well, overnight for us, uh, announced that he was leaving. Is this meaningful politically? Is it meaningful geopolitically? Or is this just some other country's problem? Uh, And I should have put it at the end of the show. Jonah. Uh, I think it's significant. Um, I think that, uh, um, I think, what he was trying to do in, in the internal fights was actually very interesting. He was claiming that he had, in effect, what the Brits are calling a presidential mandate. Um, but they don't have a presidential system insofar as he got a lot of voters to vote for him and not for, for the party. And in, British, in the British system, the prime minister's power derives entirely from the delegated authority of the votes of the members of parliament and nobody else. And... He tried to say, no, 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 I have a a different kind of mandate. And people were like, yeah, we don't buy that argument. And I watched his press conference this morning and he made, he kind of hinted at those kinds of arguments. And I think it's just, it's sort of interesting to me because I've been complaining for several years now that a lot of Americans, particularly progressives, act as if and think as if we have a parliamentary system when we don't. You know, presidential candidates say on day one, I will do all of these things when our system doesn't let a president do any of those things on day one. And and so I find it kind of ironic in Britain, it's the reverse happening, is that Boris Johnson is sort of looking at the way Trump did things and trying to go over the heads of the institutions there, and it just doesn't, it, it doesn't work. And, but more broadly, look, I mean, England is still our closest ally, at least in Europe, and, um, or, or Europe adjacent, as some of the, um, as some of my English friends might say. And that matters. And typically, I mean, it used to be more true, but trends in the UK do tell us something about trends in America. It's not always obvious what they say. And sometimes it's only clear in retrospect, but the trends that work there do have relevance to us here. And plus, I just like going to London. (laughs) (laughs) There was a great line in the morning dispatch, David, The prime minister who served for roughly three years and also served roughly for three years. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great line. It was such a good line. Um, You know, these scandals sort of ranged. There was the scandals that we had plenty of, this idea that you had COVID lockdowns for others, but not for the people in power and Boris Johnson attending slash throwing parties during those COVID lockdowns, I think got maybe the most attention. But in the end... Um, this one felt almost mundane in comparison in the sense that it's, uh, it's so common. He promoted a member of parliament to a whipping position, despite what it turns out to be his direct knowledge of sexual misconduct allegations against that person led two of his cabinet to resign, uh, several hours later, a third, and that's what broke the dam, which is sort of surprising given all of the other scandals, if we want to call them that, that didn't lead to his resignation. Also, I should just say the sexual harasser's last name was Pincher, and that's just awesome. (laughs) Um, You know, for onomatopoeia kind of reasons, but anyway. Well, and promoting him to a whipping position, not great. (laughs) (laughs) Man. Oh, Steve with that joke. Oh. (laughs) David? Yeah, this this strikes me as the classic straw that broke the camel's back kind of thing that he was under he undermined himself and undermined himself and undermined himself and then finally people had had enough and you know I I, I was intrigued by what Jonah said about how um, Britain sometimes can be a forecaster in some ways of American politics. I mean, there was certainly a lot of conversation about what Brexit said about populism, for example, and and 
drawing a line between Brexit and Donald Trump and sort of this international populist move. Um, I I wonder uh, if we're in a different place than Britain on political scandal, (laughs) where there is no such thing any longer as a straw that breaks the camel's back. I mean, you know, on the Trump movement, it's not just been straws aiming at the camel's back. It's been two by four after two by four after two by four, and nothing seems to happen. Um, but I will say this. I, I do think that the COVID hypocrisy point just matters a lot to people at a pretty visceral level because Britain went through a lockdown that made our it made made us look like we were just going to like Disney World every day during COVID. Britain's lockdown was so strict at its height. And to have that level of res- relentless hypocrisy, and I know that's not what did him in. Uh, it was this latest scandal involving Mr. Pincher, but that see it feels to me like that was just profoundly consequential in undermining him. And made him extremely vulnerable that all that came before. You had a national crisis that he demanded an enormous sacrifice and did not share in the suffering. And I think that just had real, real consequences. Okay. Very quick, very quickly. One, I, I think you're, but for the COVID stuff, he would still be prime minister. I think is pretty obvious. And in, in the UK where there is this sense that people there, there's this sense that noblesse oblige is like really strong and that it's fine to be rich and more powerful, but everyone plays by the rules. Even the queen is a mechanic during world war two kind of thing is like pretty powerful there. But then the second point, which you kind of only alluded to, which I hear all over the place, particularly on like MSNBC is why is it that British politicians and British conservatives have the willingness to resign and protest over bad things? but Americans won't. And I think this is one of these things where people are just missing the point of the differences between our systems. I think there are several times in the Trump presidency where if the if you could persuade the entire cabinet that if they resigned, Trump would leave office and go away and uh, never run again, they might have done it. They certainly would have thought seriously about it. We don't have that system. The entire U.S. cabinet could have resigned in, in en masse several times and all that would happen is that Trump would still fill out his term. And so the the one of the advantages, I'm not a pro-parliamentary system guy, but one of the advantages of a parliamentary system is that it is more responsive in these kinds of moments to that kind of thing. The, one of the downsides of it is that it's more responsive to sort of populist anger moments as well. So it's it's sort of a two sides of the coin kind of thing. So Steve, here's my hypothesis which is that actually all of this is uh, largely incorrect and that if um, if the economy were better, if inflation were lower, all the things that are happening here are happening there more or less, uh, Boris Johnson would still be in office. And that if, on the flip side, to, to Jonah's point, actually, if we had that system here, we already know what the answer would be with Biden because we've had recall elections and so far uh, nobody's doing well if they're up for a recall election. The one counter, of course, being that Boris Johnson was actually up for a no confidence vote relatively recently and survived it. Um, but I think this is I think this is a difference in system and an overall economy that we're about to see play out here in the midterm elections. Yeah, I think I think there's, that's a good point. I think it's a fair observation. I tend to think, um, and, and I think there's no no question that the poor economy is is hurting him. I don't know whether there would have been such a high level of tolerance for his bad behavior that it wouldn't have mattered that he would have been been able to stay in office. I mean, the the proverbial writing was on the wall here. I think for a while, and whatever the next thing was going to be was going to be the thing that that undid him. Um, he Fair. had very l- low levels of support in his party, both if you look at public opinion polls, but also if you look at um, what his own government ministers have been saying, o- own members of parliament had been saying. Conservatives in parliament were not enthusiastic about Boris Johnson. And I don't think anybody wanted to be out there defending him for any reason. And, you know, in, in light of what we've seen, in light of, look, the other thing to note is he was just not honest about this stuff. And I do think at the end of the day that matters. 
if you're defending him, you don't want to be defending somebody who's been dishonest several times because you can you can look like an idiot. You can get caught. I, I think the, the the Jonas distinction on the on the Trump point is is an important one. I think uh, and a and a good one. I don't think it excuses the people here defending Donald Trump because they you know they they couldn't have affected his ouster. Therefore, they needn't have tried. Um, and it, it is a reminder, even though the mechanism for getting rid of a, a leader is so different in two different places, that, you know, at some point for some people, integrity matters. I mean, the, 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 a couple of the resignation letters have pointed that out, have said, look, there was just a point where party loyalty clashed with integrity and I chose integrity. And I think we have seen that quite a bit. And with the exception of a few people on January 6th or in the aftermath of January 6th, we've seen the same party loyalty versus integrity dynamic. And most people have chosen party loyalty. Um, I don't think it probably has uh, repercussions over here in political terms for the Republican Party. Um, it will be interesting to see who's chosen to replace him. Um, you know, he's been pretty stalwart supporter of, of, uh, Ukraine. There's, uh, some question as to where conservatives will end up. I think some of the leading candidates are also supportive of, of Ukraine, but, uh, there will undoubtedly be policy implications depending on who's chosen to, uh, to replace him. Let's talk about Chicago. We're still getting some news about the shooter in Highland Park over the weekend, uh, at least seven dead, uh, dozens injured in that shooting. Five guns, 80 rounds. He at one point contemplated a second shooting uh, in a nearby neighborhood as he fled. David, you've talked about red flag laws being a potential solution or at least uh, helping potentially yeah. reduce the number of mass shootings here. He had these guns legally, despite multiple uh, metaphorical red flags and the red flag laws weren't used. Is this a case where more resources for red flag laws could have helped? Or is it just that red flag laws depend on so many other people that it makes them very hard to be effective? Well, you know, one nut, you can pass a red flag law, people can know about it, and they can be widely used. And then one of the problems, of course, is that the first time someone doesn't use it when they should be used, somebody's going to slip through the cracks. And so nothing is going to be foolproof, right? So this is a, does this help or not help? But I was really intrigued by this, Sarah, because the red flags were really obvious. And it, the more we learned, I mean, the police actually went to his home and seized knives and a sword. Um, earlier because of his threatening behavior. Uh, there was just, it wasn't just sort of his his uh, videos that he was making that covered the internet for a day or two after he was captured. It was a lot of, there were a lot of other things where this guy was a classic example of where red flag law should have barred him from having a gun. And I went and I looked at Illinois and I, and I went to the Illinois Justi Criminal Justice Information Authority. And I'm much more familiar with the red flag regime in Florida, where since Parkland, they've been used 6,000 times, about 6,000 times. And I think about 2,000 red flag orders are active right now. In Illinois, in 2019, red flag laws were used 34 times. In 2020, they were used 19 times. And, and what that tells me is people don't know they're there. They don't know it exists. And if nobody, if people don't know it exists, then it's just as well that it's not, it's just like it's not even on the books. So that's a remarkable disparity. And in Illinois, for context, is a, is a uh, state of 13 million, almost 13 million people. And here you have a total of 53 red flag uses in the two years that I see data available. And that's one of the reasons why I support the um, Cornyn Murphy compromise that incentivizes red flag laws because it provides funding. People have to know these things are there. People know domestic violence restraining orders exist, but in a lot of states, I guarantee you there's people walking around knowing that knowing, not knowing these things are on the books at all. And if people have, don't have any idea they're there, including police, by the way, um, then it's just like the laws never been passed. 
Steve, I hear what David's saying. Um, it makes some sense to me, but nevertheless, you're still depending on what better PR for red flag laws, maybe some more resources. To me, when I see one of these shootings, uh, and let's take it out of the mass shooting context in the just criminal violent crime context, oftentimes they're illegal guns, at which point my reaction to that is, okay, well, more laws won't do more to prevent illegal guns if it was illegal already. That's a resource issue, a police issue, a prosecution issue. But recently we've seen a spate of legally owned guns, which to me... uh, takes away that response that we so often hear from the right, which is we don't need more gun laws. We need to enforce the gun laws we have. If I'm looking at 21-year-olds who keep having these arsenals and are going to elementary schools, 4th of July parades, uh, I should perhaps mention, you know, a college roommate of mine was at this parade um, with her children. And is, you know, when you see those pictures of the strollers being left behind, like that's, you know, her stroller. Um, So... It, do we need more gun laws? Is this the end? Are we done with this argument now? So let me take that carefully framed question and just set it aside for a moment because <laughs> I think there's a bigger point. Um, you can push me on it w- when I'm done. What what seems clearer and clearer happened in this case is a fail uh, is a failure of personal responsibility. I mean, if you look at what this young man had been doing to get attention. Uh, it had persisted for years and he didn't get the attention. The, the reason he had a legally obtained firearm in part is because his father signed the teenager's uh, application to get those firearms and did so four months after police visited his house when he threatened to, quote, kill everyone. Mm-hmm. His father insists that he didn't know that his son had threatened to kill everyone. Uh, sloughs off responsibility for uh, the the knife and dagger confiscation, though he had to sign to get those weapons returned to his son. You had interviews from the shooter's uncle with CNN immediately after the shooting saying there were no signs. We had no idea. This is not consistent with what we thought. Look, it's all wrong. It's all BS. And at a certain point, people have to take responsibility for that. His family has a certain responsibility to help protect society from somebody like this. They didn't do it. They failed. And that's increasingly clear. I think that you can see a contrast with news reports about what we saw happen in Richmond this weekend. In Richmond, Virginia, there were reports uh, that a uh, someone overheard a conversation about a potential mass shooting also on July 4th. The tipster went to the police. The police began an investigation. They visited the site uh, where this planning was supposedly taking place. They confiscated the guns. They arrested one of the would-be perpetrators, followed the other through the weekend, uh, past July 4th, and arrested the second person. And and the authorities there say this tipster, the willingness of someone to speak out, stopped what would have been carnage, more carnage on the 4th of July. At a certain point, personal responsibility matters. We didn't see it in Chicago. We did see it in Richmond. Um, I am not willing to put my my life, my kids' lives in the hands of people need to be more responsible at this point because All of these, I think there have been at least some indications that parents or relatives should have known, and they didn't call. And we can come up with all sorts of reasons, but it's not happening. And so is it the case, Jonah, that, you know, expanded background checks for those under 21 isn't enough? We just need to raise the age to buy guns because, frankly, setting aside Las Vegas, where we will never understand why that person did it, um, uh, sort of a late middle-aged man. The vast majority of these are very young men. Yeah, look, I I, I mean there there have been other older I mean like the congressional baseball game shooter was a older guy too, right? But that sure. was more of a political thing. I think part of the so I you know one of the remarkable things about this whole conversation, I mean I don't mean just this podcast, I mean nationally is that if like you were a visitor from Mars, the idea that the 
wanton gun crime, uh, deaths, gun deaths that happen on any given weekend in, say, Chicago uh, or Philadelphia um, that don't really cause a lot of national attention. Um, and then you have these other attacks, which are sort of more akin to like shark attacks. There's something about the randomness of them and the lack of a normal criminal motive that makes them just so much more terrifying. Right. And, but like, as a policy matter, you have people on the right saying, do all this stuff about the gun crimes in inner cities, but you just got to kind of live with these wanton murder sprees and you have people on the left saying you got to do something, everything about these wanton murder sprees, but we got to stop putting people in jail <laughs> um, for these other kinds of crimes. It's a, there's a weird cognitive dissonance um, that's sort of running through this debate that at some point I think is going to reconcile itself in ways that will please neither side. I I'm inclined these days to actually answer your question. Um, you're inclined these days to answer my question. <laughs> I'm, I'm, well, no, I'm never really inclined to answer your question, but uh, to answer your question, I am inclined these days to, first of all, I think for like raising the age for guns does not bother me in the slightest. I don't know that 21 will do everything that we needed to do, but nothing will do everything that we needed to do. Um, I got to say, and I, I don't want to start a huge fight with David on this, but uh, I think the thing that's going to have to give in some ways are the, is on the free speech side. And but what I mean by that is, yeah, we all still have free speech rights and all the rest. And I'm, you know, what has two thumbs and loves the First Amendment? This guy. But um, in a country with 400, 500 million guns, um, in a country where, like, you cannot ban high-capacity magazines because uh, they're easy to sort of DIY in your garage or uh, even make with 3D printing or just order on the, you know, on the used market because they're not, they have, don't have serial numbers on them. So, like, the high-capacity magazines are here. The guns are here. Um, given the Supreme Court rulings, the right to bear arms is is here for a while. And it seems to me, following on a point that David makes a, a lot, virtually all of these serial killers, all of these mass killers, I guess the term of art is leak, but they 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 have tells. They let people know that they're thinking about this stuff. That they they start posting in chat rooms about how awesome Columbine or Sandy Hook was. And I think you got to start having algorithms that look less at Jordan Peterson and Dennis Prager's <laughs> tweets or posts, and more at like if if you're constantly talking about Columbine or Sandy Hook. Um, if you're constantly talking about about Parkland or the 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 you know the Danish shooter guys or any of that kind of stuff, I'm not saying that alone should bring the power of the state or ban you or anything like that. But I think there the, the AI can do the first pass on that stuff and let people look at it because it is out. I just can't get my head around how angry I would be if I were a parent in one of these situations. And or a spouse, and then you hear about all the things that this evil twerp was putting out there about mass killings, or the Uvalde shooter was putting out there, um, yep, yep, celebrating yep. the idea of doing this stuff, and the idea that somehow the system is, you know, going to obsess about you know high-profile transgender debates, but not be looking for that kind of thing. Um, is problematic. And I think there are going to be people saying, well, look, it's just free expression and they're going to be, it's going to catch a lot of false positives, as it were. But if I were in Congress, I would yell much more at the, the social media platforms for not looking at this stuff than for looking at the stuff that they are looking at. Yeah, a private entity like Facebook um, combing or Twitter or Instagram or Tele, you know, some of them, Discord, I mean, some of this stuff happens in, Really platforms we really yeah. yeah we really don't think about very much but private entities combing through for evidence of suicidal ideation or mass shooting ideation that's not a first amendment issue um that's how a private platform is intending to use it's it's at what kind of speech they want to host uh so i do think there's a lot of room here for these platforms to do better in this regard in fact 
they'd done pretty well. And if you go all the way back to 2014, 2015 and the rise of ISIS, that uh, terrorists were using social media platforms pretty darn proficiently early in the rise of ISIS. And the platforms did a pretty darn good job of removing terrorist content. And so they had to migrate elsewhere, which, you know, they migrated elsewhere, but it was, it, it definitely was an inconvenience. But a lot of these guys who are doing, engaging in this behavior, these are not rocket scientists trying to, uh, yeah, they're not, they're not rocket scientists. They're troubled, impulsive young kids. And that's one of the reasons why they're constantly leaking their plans. So I, I am all for Facebook or Twitter or you name the social media platform doing what it can to highlight and amplify, or at least to highlight and it uh, transmit to law enforcement, perhaps, for example, some of the evidence of this ideation. Uh, I, I think that that's a very useful concept. Um, look, on the gun point, I have, you know, after Parkland, uh, Florida passed two laws, a red flag law, which unlike Illinois has been used thousands of times, and also raised the age, lim age limit on purchasing rifles to 21. I've got no problem with either one of those, with the, the raising the age limit or the enhanced background check. Um, the issue with mass shootings, that's it's just there's just no evidence that gun restrictions are effective. Uh, the Rand Corporation looked at this and has has looked at gun restrictions more broadly, and especially looked at them in the in the mass shooting context. And has found no uh, no evidence that any of the eighteen policies they investigated uh, had a uh, in either increased or decreased mass shootings. And a part of the reason is this is a very unique kind of crime. I, I recommend the Gladwell article all the time, the 2015 Gladwell article about school shootings that also applies to mass shootings. And you read that and you begin to understand why the common gun control measures have been relatively ineffective, that there's no evidence that they have a real effect. And it's because of the incredible advanced planning that many of these guys engage in. And, you know, Buffalo, for example, the guy bought a, a firearm that was compliant with the New York um, assault weapons ban and then promptly modified it. Um, so yeah, I hear you. I do not at all it, uh, oppose a, a, an age limit increase, uh, but the mass shooting problem is a different kind of problem than other gun violence problems. And that's why we're trying to grasp for creative policy solutions that, um, that you know, frankly, had been untried and untested until now. And, and you know, the red flag is one of them. For what it's worth, I would support uh, an enormous outlay of resources just on gun prosecutions that we have done somewhat. We've played with it back and forth in different administrations at the federal level. I would do huge push of grants to states to focus on gun crimes, A. B, I would raise the age to buy a gun real high. You probably can't come up with a number that I would disagree with. Um, and then I would have a carve out for military service. If you served in the military, then you get to have a legal weapon at a younger age uh, based on that, uh, which could also incentivize folks joining the military potentially. Um, but I just, I, at this point, I've said this before, let's just try some stuff. Let's do more. Let's try more. Let's experiment more. Different states experimenting more would be good. This is the 50 state experiment thing. And David, like you said, nobody has come up with um, the answer to this, obviously. So so let's keep trying. Let's not just throw up our hands. Uh, red flag laws, all of it. Steve, I'm hoping you can give us an update on Ukraine, something that has certainly fallen out of the news in light of so much domestic news. Yeah, I can. Uh, and it's not a good one. Um, we are seeing Russia in what appears to be uh, an operational pause, at least according to the Institute for the Study of War here in the United States. Um, they're, they're not doing the things that they had been doing, um, for months and months, both with respect to kinetic military action and also, um, with respect to the kinds of things that they're announcing and are not announcing, um, the ISW notes 
that there were no claimed or assessed Russian territorial gains in Ukraine on the 6th of July for the first time in 133 days of war. So the Russians weren't saying, here's what we got. Um, Beyond that, if you look at what the Russian government has been doing back in Moscow, they've been both consolidating power and laying the groundwork for a really, really long war. Uh, continuing to grab power that will allow the Russian government more control over the economy uh, in the kind of, to take the kind of measures that one might expect uh, in a sort of an ongoing prolonged emergency. Uh, so that's all not good. Um, the, the question I think as it relates to the United States and our policy here is what do we do? Do we care? Um, the Biden administration has been continuing to, to, to send money and weapons. But I would say, again, without tremendous urgency, uh, is there more that the United States can do? There is more that the United States can do. And uh, in my view, we ought to be doing it. We do not want this to be a long war of attrition uh, where Russia battles Ukraine because Ukraine will continue to be outgunned and Russia is sort of staking its future existence on this war. Uh, those are not good good terms for for us or for the ukrainians david i agree with all that steve said this operational pause has been to the extent that it's going to be uh enduring is one that's been predicted for some time in fact a lot of experts have been kind of surprised that it hasn't occurred yet because the pace of combat operations with the same troops by the way just moving um, uh, many of these same units that were shattered outside of kiev moving them to the donbass so a lot of these guys have been in combat continually for week after week, now month after month, and there's just a limit. There's a limit of human exhaustion that a lot of folks thought the Russians would have reached for some time. And that doesn't mean that uh, when the Russians reach a limit of exhaustion, the war stops. It means that there's a pause. And this happens in all sustained conflicts. In every sustained conflict, the the intensity of combat on the front ebbs and flows and you have periodic offensives and times to regroup and regather your forces. And so, as Steve said, like the indication here is Russia's digging in for the long haul. It's trying to do a lot of really creative things to bolster the size of its forces without going towards sort of universal mobilization. On the Ukrainian side, Western weapons, Ukraine, a lot of folks have called this, I believe the phrase that I've heard a couple of times is valley of vulnerability. And that Ukraine is beginning to sort of run out of its initial Soviet-era munitions and weapons, yet not all of the Western replacements are coming online. Uh, They have ammunition shortages. So they're in a state of exhaustion. So you have the Ukrainians in a state of exhaustion, the Russians who are in a perhaps in a regrouping phase. But the bottom line is the Russians have advanced. They have chewed up what now about 20% of Ukrainian territory totally, the blockade on Ukrainian grain holds. And I would say a grim reality is setting in that people need, if, if the thought is that Ukraine will eventually not just hold off the Russians and keep them from taking the country, but that they can somehow push the Russians back, then there has got to be a lot of really creative thinking as to how that is going to be possible. Because right now, the Ukrainians are taking shocking losses to lose slowly. Um, how are they going to turn that around and actually prevail in this conflict? That, that's the plan that I haven't heard. Um, it's, right now, it's been all about making sure Russia doesn't take the country or Re- Russia doesn't break through in the Donbass. And all of that is incredibly important and necessary. Um, what's the next step? What's the next step? Because if there is no next step, then you're looking at a grinding war of attrition um, that would likely end up with a partition of the country. Jonah, the slowness to some extent seems to very much be helping Vladimir Putin because the attention of the world, the outrage of the world can't withstand that grind. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's I mean, there's a real problem of short attention spans. Um in the West, and you see this in sort of Germany's 
we're with you. Well, we're not with you. Well, we're sort of with you. We're with you again, kind of response to all of this. And I think this is one of the concerns they have about Boris Johnson stepping down is that he had really hitched his prime ministership towards supporting Ukraine to the hilt. And you could see it's still a popular cause in, in the UK, but you could see someone having a little more maneuvering room just because it'd be impossible to be more supportive of the effort than, than Yeltsin already was. I mean, than, than, than Boris already was, Boris Johnson already was. Um, I, you know, I, I, I'm long-term kind of optimistic for Ukraine because and it's, it's going to join the EU, at least the part of it that's not occupied by Russia. It's going to, you know, the, the main reason why Putin wanted to uh, decapitate Ukraine um, in the first place was the threat of having a viable, fairly democratic, prosperous, Western-oriented, uh, historically part of the Russian Empire country on his border was just too much of a bad example for his regime and his his political economic model. And it looks like Ukraine is going to move into the part that's not occupied is going to move in that model sooner rather than later. Um, and that's, I think, long term, a really big problem for Putin and could fuel internal weaknesses for his regime. But in the short and medium term, and the short and medium term could be years, it's really bad for Ukraine, and it's really outrageous uh, what Putin is, appears to be getting away with right now. I mean, uh, and so it's a very uh, short and medium term, I'm, I'm pretty pessimistic and sad about this, but I think at the end of the day, no historian is going to look back on this and say, wow, what a masterstroke by Putin. Steve, I want you to pick up on that thread. How will historians look back on this? I don't know that we know yet. I mean, I think, I think, um, you know, certainly I think Vladimir Putin will be looked at, a, uh, looked at as a monster because he's a monster. Um, and the, you know, the historical reckoning for the kinds of things that we've seen over the first five months of, of the war, uh, will be absolutely brutal and should be absolutely brutal. Uh, the question is, does this result in some kind of victory for Russia um, number one and number two, you know, does the United States begin to treat this war as our own war? I mean, you've heard rhetoric from both the Biden administration and from top Republicans that what happens in Ukraine matters not only because of because of Ukraine and because of the Ukrainian people, because of uh, what it would mean for that country and its territory, but also for what it would mean for the region generally, for the signals it would send to have somebody like Vladimir Putin triumph um, in this kind of naked aggression. Um, I, if the United States doesn't step up, I think that this could have pretty profound implications the way that history records our willingness to protect this post-World War II rules-based liberal order. And it should if, if we don't step up. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turn into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Let's talk about 2022. Jonah, oil has fallen below $100 a barrel for the first time in quite a while. Immigration surging at the southern border. Is there anything 
that can change between now and November? Or is the midterm election baked? Well, first of all, just as a side note, I very much am expecting any moment now Joe Biden to appear before the podium and thank the oil companies for their generosity and altruism in agreeing to lower oil prices, right? I mean, because if they're being greedy when they're going up, then when the prices go down, it must be because they're being altruistic and generous. Um, uh, and I am being facetious. But um, I, I, I think the, the sort of the, the 800-pound gorilla in your question that it w- was not mentioned is the post-Dobbs political environment. And it does not look like the abortion ruling overturning Roe has had the effect that certainly activists wanted, wanted it to have. Um, you just don't see a big move in the numbers anywhere. You don't see a big move in attitudes. Yeah, so like this fascinating uh, Harvard poll that just came out says 45% of Americans wanted think Roe should be the law, but then something like 70-something say that we should also have a 15-week ban on abortions. Um, And so you would figure in this sort of climate, the pro-Roe side would be greater than 55-45. More broadly, I, I, I think that it is unlikely that the Democrats are going to be able to move the needle significantly at least on house rate on the house i think it is baked in that the democrats lose the house um i don't see how biden's approval numbers can get improved that much between now and november um and in part because the one of the biggest misgivings it seems that voters have about biden is is he just seems physically on a on you know, not up to the job. And I don't know, unless he gets a lot of of vitamin B12 shots, you know, starting in the fall, I don't know how that changes. Um, And and it does appear that inflation is in fact peaking or has peaked and is starting to go down. Um, An economist friend of mine was sending me some stuff on this yesterday. I just don't know that the lag time uh, for people to feel that will be sufficiently short for it to change anything. I do think the Senate's in play, but I think it's baked into the cake that Democrats lose the house. And the only question is by how many seats is that above or below the historic average of what? 22 seats. That's the only real question. David is 2022 baked or are any of these things going to move in one direction or another? Yeah. I mean, I'm tempted to say baked, but there are too many of these Senate races where there are, eccentric candidates running on the Republican side. I don't think the Senate is baked at all uh, at this point. I don't think the Senate is baked at all. To the extent the House is baked, I'm much more convinced of that. Um, but, you know, I'm mainly, I'm mainly convinced of that, Sarah, by the least favorite kind of polling, the kind of polling you hate the most, and we all hate the most, which is issue polling. Because the issue polling seems really bad for Democrats. But then you look at like the generic party voting and it seems to be getting better for Democrats. Uh, So what gives on that? I'm very interested to see that in the long term. I'm also really puzzled by a lot of the polling on abortion because um, there was some recent data, I believe, from Pew showing that a lot of the Republican moves now on abortion are really unpopular, like really unpopular. And at the same time, abortion is a very low a priority. So what matters? Really unpopular or low priority? I mean, I default towards sort of saying low priority is the the thing that will ultimately matter the most. And people, of course, will vote on higher priority issues, even if they don't like some of the Republicans moves on abortion. But it, there's there seems to be some conflicting data out there, um, some really eccentric Senate candidates. And so you know, how many love children does Herschel Walker have to have to, for it to matter in Georgia, for example? Like the questions like that are, are front of mind. Um, I can't and, remember last time I heard the plural of love child just so, <laughs> so casually put out there, but uh, it's good. I like it. 
uh, or I think the, t- the phrase being used in the race is secret sons. So how many secret sons? Uh, so there's, I, I keep thinking baked. I keep thinking baked. And then every now and then, then something crosses uh, the screen that says, is it though? Is it though? But I'm so much less interested in my opinion on this than yours, Sarah, to be honest. Me too. Uh, let's get Steve in here. I, Steve, Steve's been sharing some interesting stuff in Slack. Steve always has interesting thoughts on this stuff. Steve, you think that Democrats, or at least that there's a case to be made that Democrats uh, could fare better than people think, that the narrative has gone so far the other direction that it's also probably a little inaccurate that way. I definitely think there's a case to be made. I just happen to think the case is wrong. <laughs> there's a... <laughs> There's a, 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 a pretty smart Democratic strategist named Simon Rosenberg who's putting out some some numbers on uh, Twitter over the last couple of days and has been holding some some briefings showing, as David hinted, that uh, if you look at the generic ballot numbers, when you ask people, are you going to are you likely to vote for Democrat or Republican in the fall? Um, the Democrats have improved in recent days in that measurement, which can be uh, an interesting indication of what's likely to happen in the fall. But I do think when you just look at the atmosphere that we've talked about here, we've talked about it on, on Dispatch Lives, we've written about it quite a bit, Sarah, you've written about it in Sweep. You know, this is a horrible environment for Democrats. The right track, wrong track numbers are uh, awful for Democrats and Joe Biden. Yeah. Joe Biden's approval numbers are awful. The 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 overall trends are awful. The historical indicators are awful. I mean, there's there's just not a lot I think Democrats can do to turn this around. I will say the one saving grace, if you're a partisan Democrat, you, you look at the candidates, and particularly in the Senate, you look at the candidates that Republicans uh, either have nominated or are set to nominate in Senate races, to some extent in, in governor's races and, and House races as well. But Senate races in particular, is if you think that that's sort of where the, the battle for control of Congress is likely to lie. Um, and Republicans have nominated a lot of really bad candidates. Um, I'm tempted to say really bad people. But really bad candidates who are not are likely to have uh, won because they appeal to a small but powerful and vocal group of base Republicans, um, not based, but base Republicans. Um, they, All about that base. They, <laughs> they are not likely to have great crossover appeal, crossover party appeal. And, um, you know, you go and you look at the, 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 a lot of the, the states that are most likely to be, um, contested, hotly contested. And those are the candidates that Republicans are going to have to line up behind. Um, I think it's entirely possible that Republicans sweep to victory in the house in a commanding way and don't pick up the Senate precisely because in those races, we will learn as we have known for a long time that candidates really do matter. And at that moment, Mitch McConnell puts his fist through a plate glass window. (laughs) (laughs) It feels nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a big argument and it's better probably done in, in, in an after the fact uh, review, but there's a pretty good argument that the people who didn't want the kind of candidates to prevail in these Republican primaries should have been doing a lot more than they were doing to keep those Republicans from from prevailing in these Republican uh, in these Republican primary contests. You know, you go back and you look at the kind of shoulder shrug I think that we saw in in the aftermath of Georgia uh, when Donald Trump and uh, it cost Republicans the, the Senate majority by doing everything that he did in the days leading up to, to January 6th. Um, and the lack of willingness to say after that, boy, we maybe ought not line up behind this guy and we maybe ought not nominate the candidates that he prefers us to nominate. And I think you saw many Republicans kind of slink back to the posture that they had had for most of the Trump years, which was, eh, I don't want to get in a big, ugly fight about it. We can't have a big, ugly fight with Donald Trump because we'll lose. And and he, and here we are. 
Okay, so I have uh, thoughts that are not meant to form a cohesive whole, but I'll just start throwing out brain thoughts. One, uh, that would be great if the, Jonah would uh, would <laughs> offer that 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 <laughs> sort of disclaimer before he he talks. <laughs> I'm uh, right here, you know. One is <laughs> the amount of money that some of these Democratic campaign committees are spending in Republican primaries is stunning. Uh, I hesitate to use the word outrageous um, because it would also imply sort of a newness. But I do think that this is new. I get that it's been done before, but the level, the consistency, the amount, um, the ubiquity of it is new. And to have, for instance, the uh, executive director of the Democratic Governors Association come out and say, like, yeah, damn right, that's what we're doing. Um, You know, in the most recent iteration in a governor's race, uh, you know, they're running ads that give this like veneer of plausible deniability where they say this person is extreme. They're pro-life, pro-Second Amendment, and they love Donald Trump. They know (laughs) what they're doing. It's very Mm -hmm. intentional. Um, And I think it tells you the mindset of where the smartest operative minds in the Democratic Party think this is going at the Senate level, at the governor's level, and what they're willing to stake at the table, uh, if you will, to try to change what they feel like is already baked. Um, and it's it's gross and terrifying and um, deeply disturbing. Another thought. I've talked about how I just don't see the data out there of abortion making a difference as a policy issue in 2022 I want to give the slight alternative version because none of that has changed. There is simply no data to say that this will turn out people or uh, have people change their vote. It's not to say it won't happen. I just haven't seen any data for it. Um, But a lot of people have reached out to say like, okay, but what about the enthusiasm of the Democratic base? So fine, they were already voting and they were already voting Democratic, but a lot of enthusiasm. What about the money? Okay, so I have a couple answers to that. One, we've reached a tipping point on the money. Something raising money for one party or the other is not meaningful to me anymore unless that specific race wasn't going to have real money behind it. Very few of these House races aren't going to have more money than they know what to do with. None of the Senate races uh, will be under that tipping point of not just diminishing returns on what to do with the money, like They're setting the money on fire because they don't know what to do with the money. And if you end up with money in the bank at the end and you've lost, people blame you and won't give you money next time. They won't hire you to be campaign manager, et cetera. Um, So no, I don't think the money matters. However, here's what I think does matter. In 2020, in those Senate races, so bleeding slightly into 2021 in Georgia, the Democrats tried out something new. And I think... Uh, They'll do it again in 2022, and I think it's very smart. And that is paying volunteers to talk to their friends. So if you're one of those people who is turned on by the abortion issue, um, uh, you know, you've already been voting, perhaps. You're an energized Democrat who, instead of, you know, maybe you don't like door knocking or you door knock for a couple weekends and you're like, all right, it's hot. Um, Instead, what they're going to do is pay you a relatively small amount of that enormous amount of money that they don't know what to do with, that they would otherwise be setting on fire and giving to consultants. They're going to pay it to their volunteers to reach out to their five friends. Because the one thing we know is actually the most effective uh, is person-to-person contact, like door knocking. But what's even more effective than that is person-to-person contact with someone you know. So, uh, you know, Jonah calling me and saying who he's going to vote for is in every academic study, by far the highest um, change that you're going to see of any potential tactic. And so Democrats are putting money behind that. Although specifically we should say me telling you who I'm going to vote for has almost (laughs) no effect. But I take your point figuratively. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's a little hard to argue with that. Yeah, yeah. It seems fair. Uh, So I think that could have a real effect you know, maybe we're talking two points in some of these Senate races and that two points could be really significant as we saw it was in the Georgia Senate races in 2020. Um, uh, And then last thought, I think the price of oil actually does have a chance 
to make a real change in some of these races. Gas prices go down significantly. Um, People will feel that instantly and it will simply change the anger level. And so when we talk about it being baked uh, and what could possibly change, abortion, immigration, guns, those sort of issue polling things that David keeps mentioning in order to see if I will throw something through uh, the wall here. Um, I don't see any issue changing 2022, but and inflation can't just like magically go down. That's just something that can't happen quickly enough. But the price of gas can happen pretty quickly. I'm not saying it will, but if it did, that will have ripple effects through the economy and it will certainly hit in people's lives where some of those people who were otherwise going to show up and vote Republican just may be less motivated to do so. So that could be something where I'm like, well, maybe it's not totally baked on that front. I wasn't expecting the price of oil to fall below $100 a barrel. Now, if a recession happens, then the opposite could happen. It's unbaked the other way, where some of these Senate races, the wave goes from an eight-point wave to a 12-point wave, and it it swamps the other way. All right. Uh, now it's time for Not Worth Your Time. Um, Jonah, we were talking about this a little in the green room ahead of time. One of the producers for Friends, the show from the 90s, uh, has said that she regrets an episode where they misgendered Chandler's dad, who was played by Kathleen Turner. It was a trans character, so they should have called it Chandler's mom. And the episode is really is literally called, I think, the one about Chandler's dad. And she has given this interview about how much she regrets that. Uh, on the one hand, okay. On the other hand, this is a show from the 90s, and we're, we're going to revisit episodes. Uh, this isn't just like not worth our time on the podcast. It feels like why is anyone, why is this person able to get attention for this? Yeah, I think it's really a dumb form of sort of, I don't even know what you call it, of sort of inside the a certain bubble sort of marketing, for want of a better term. Like maybe, yeah. I was thinking maybe, maybe Kaufman has a new product coming online and like the places that she wants to sell it to or invested in this kind of stuff or the producer or the executives are invested in this kind of stuff. But like, I mean, I honestly think that like the NAACP should probably drop, drop the phrase colored people. Um, because they're actively working today and it's like a weird thing, you know, and I get it, but like, if we're going to go back and say that we use the wrong terms for things in popular culture, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, um, there's really no end to it. And there's something sort of vaguely sort of Soviet-era airbrushy about history, too, that kind of bothers me because they're pulling um, they're pulling episodes of various things that are problematic. There was a, f- there's a blackface episode of Community that they, they pulled once in a recently. Um, it's just all so silly, and, um, and it's, it's, it's such a waste of time. But David, how am I supposed to think of this vis-a-vis, for instance, Confederate monuments or the naming of bases where I actually do think that the bases should all be renamed? (laughs) I think there's a difference in importance and magnitude. Um, (laughs) What? Uh, We're supposed to have a a monitor for how important something is. <laughs> On the worth it's, your time segment? What? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is let me point out, it's the not worth your time segment. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> continuing the long tradition of saying something's not worth our time and then spending a fair <laughs> amount of time talking about it. But, you know, the really interesting thing is there seems to be, that might be worth our time at some point, a shift in the wind on sort of what you might call radical gender ideology, that there have been a number of mainstream publications, New York Times, for example, recently, uh, Washington Post, that have really sort of started to call into question the, the, you know, the complete remaking of language, the complete rethinking of gender, um, and, you know, and, and also the wisdom of a lot of early interventions. And so there is sort of a, not to use a trendy term, but there does seem to be kind of a vibe shift out there that is, not, <laughs> that is, uh, might be worth paying attention to. 
it might be worth a deeper dive also at some point that you and Jonah both have um, late teenage slash very early 20s children. And yet David seems to be the one to use things like vibe shift and Jonah doesn't. And Jonah should be as attuned (laughs) to this as David. And why is that? Um, Steve, you also have teenagers, but I guess I just assumed that you would actively shun adopting their language. I, I try not to, to do it. I try not to speak their language. I'm an adult. They're teenagers. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. It's so bougie of you. And with that, thank you so much for joining us. Definitely rate us wherever you're listening to this. And if you'd like to comment on the show, you can become a member of the dispatch and hop in that comment section where you may see any one of us lurking and we'll talk to you next week. 